Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Honest Conversations with Alex Cubis. If you looked at the time for this episode, it seems extra long because it is a two-parter. Megan and I, um, award-winning Australian filmmaker Megan Donovan and I were in different cities and we recorded the conversation um, over Skype. So we had some technical issues. So please forgive me on that front. There might be some awkward gaps which I've made the best of in post-editing. Um and also, if you get to the end of the, uh, I think I feel I need a want exercise um, at the what you think is the end, stay tuned for a part two because Megan continues to offer great insights into cre- career, creativity, and humanity that I think would benefit not only film students or actors or writers, but any freelancer, professional, or person just looking to maybe cultivate a greater sense of self and personal point of view. Anyway, um, I hope you enjoy, listen to both parts, listen to one. I don't really care. It's up to you, but feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Ask me any questions and yeah, get ready for some good insights. Thanks, guys. Obviously, as I've just stated, uh, made her own films for which she's won an actor award and um, you work with Hoodlum Production Company who are behind such TV shows like Slide and Secrets of Lies. Um, I start, but we'll get to all of that later. Um, My listeners will know that I start every conversation the same way. Megan, you probably don't. I ask the same four questions, which you will hopefully be able to finish. Um, And... <laughs> I think I feel I need I want. So right in this moment, I think I'm nervous. I feel thirsty. I want money, and I need food. Whatever is on your mind. Oh, can you? So can you just repeat that? It just broke up a little bit. Yeah, Sorry, yeah, I just, sure. I just kind of got bits and pieces. No, no, that's fine. So I think I feel I need I want. Um, finish those phrases oh. as honestly as possible. Uh, I think, gosh, these are, these are, these are really hard questions. Very good questions though. Uh, I think, uh, every day about trying to be the best person that I can be. Whoa. I often fail. That is good. Okay, uh, cool. I'm sure not the failing part. I don't think that's that, true, but anyway. No, I do. I do. And maybe I give myself a hard time, but I do. I honestly do think when I kind of get up, I just think, I have kind of a, a, a goal list every day of what I want to achieve because that kind of accumulates into your week and then that accumulates into your years and that accumulates yeah. into your life. So I'm, I'm very um, I'm very conscious of time. And I think because I've always worked long hours in jobs and I've also lost people in my life, so time for me is the most important, one of the most important, important. things other than freedom. And Interesting. Well, it's one of the most important things in my life. So I, think, I do think every day about, okay, how can I be – because I think everyone's got a range in terms of their best and their worst. Yeah. <laughs> I try and veer away from the worst. Yeah, I try yeah. and move toward the best. I don't, I, don't, I don't get there, but I think intention is everything. Yeah. And, yeah, that's that's probably what I – if I'm honest, that's probably what I think about. And that, that comes down to personal life, relationships, and work. Definitely. Everything, without sounding like someone who's – Pious. Um, no, yeah, that's, no. that's probably what I think. Um, what about I feel right now? How do you feel? I feel, um, I feel like I just went to Italy and Good. I feel, it made me feel very, ex- can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Was that holiday or is that a work thing? 
it was um, a little bit of both. I feel a little bit of sadness when I look at, for example, Trump, who was elected yeah. into office. Yeah. I feel a little sad about what's happening with the environment. Yeah. And I just read an article the other day and a scientist said that the earth is two degrees warmer now and there's no turning back. Uh. <laughs> I, like, I mean, it's one, it's one degree warmer. We're heading to the two degrees warmer and there's no turning back from that. And there's going to be a lot of consequences from that. Like we can, you can turn back a lot of things, but I, I feel scared when, when it comes, someone says of oh, note, wow, we can't actually, we can't recover from this. Yeah. So when I think, when I, when I think of things, I feel those things, but I just went to Italy and when I saw Venice for the first time and I saw the beauty that human beings created on water mm. at a time when it was really impossible to create something like that on water, um, I feel really hopeful because I think, wow, that this is, I, can't, I couldn't believe the extraordinary beauty of that city and mm. human beings created that beauty. So while we're capable of a lot of ugliness and destruction, we're also capable of great beauty. And, you know, when you look at that kind of beauty, you just I just felt so inspired as an artist as a person i was just i thought wow there's a place like that on earth such beauty that's um, good that you have that that's good uh, that you so have I that attitude like, because some people may have actually said the opposite that it's now like a sinking fading city well no i mean god it, it, you know it, there's always realities about beauty. yeah but yes, you still saw the beauty is oh, always fake <laughs> beauty, yeah everything's temporary yeah but you know, I, I you know, it made me feel so hopeful for the first time in a long time, and I don't know why. And I'm so glad that I felt that. Um, but I feel, you know, I can. It, it depends where you let your mind go. That it's kind of that, that half glass full, half glass empty mm. uh, syndrome. You know, you can feel really despondent and sad when you kind of read read about where the world's heading. But then you can, you know, you've got to choose to kind of look in different areas and. Are you wired? You've always got to feel. I think you've always got to feel hopeful. Definitely. Are you wired generally to be more of a positive person, or have you trained yourself to think that way? I'm not wired. I'm I'm wired to be cynical. Okay. As as many people are, as many Australians, as many Australians are, and as many people in the industry are. Totally. I'm so wired to not trust people. Yeah, skeptical. Um, cynical and a little, you know, a little on the pessimistic side. Like, well, you know, things things are things are gonna just um, tank. But uh, yeah, certainly you cannot. You you have to. I, you have to train yourself to be the other way because it really is a matter of perception. Everything, truth, everything, mm. beauty, everything in this world is perception based. And you just gotta. I work to train my perception the other way. Yeah. So of course, I'm, I'm not a Pollyanna. Yeah. By, Particularly um, in the, as my a, DNA. Yeah. My DNA is not a polyana, so. <laughs> okay. That's interesting. We'll get to that after. Um, what about I need, I want? I need coffee. Okay. <laughs> I yeah. need, I need um, my, my family and my life. That's the, really the only two. If, I always think like if an apocalypse hit, you'd really find out what you need. And I need my family and I, I need love and I need my coffee. Yeah. Espresso, like not bad, not a bad American coffee. I'm talking like <laughs> Australian espresso. <laughs> yeah. How often do you have to? That's force... what I, if I'm honest. That's yeah. Funny. No, that's awesome. Um, that actually sort of is a confluence of the two questions. Then, so with uh, with asking yourself if an apocalypse hit, and also um, thinking positively, um, did you re- do you recall like a moment as a filmmaker where you had been 
negative maybe up until your early 20s and then all of a sudden you realize no I need to be positive now and what was there is there a story behind no. that nothing nothing look in my experience nothing in this life just happened like that okay. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to work at it and everything's accumulative and that's one of the that's one I, I love um I love going through life and going through ebbs and flows because it just teaches you so much yeah. and everything my my mind from my experience everything is accumulative yeah okay. and you can make your you if it's like you need to know I think everyone needs to know you can actively make a a choice you know not just every day but every second of every day of how you're going to respond to a situation mm-hmm. um you know i studied i my mom my mom teaches this meditation practice all over the world and it's not religious it's just like a yoga technique but one of the things i'm not really into anything organized i'm just not made okay. that way i don't like it organized tours or organized religion or any okay. of it <laughs> but okay. one thing i really loved from the teaching was that you are the master of your mind you're the master of yourself and you're the master of your own habits happiness and you're the master of your own choices and nobody can actually hurt you you can you're the only person you can hurt yourself um in terms of how you respond to things so no i think i and and your choices as as i said are accumulative your responses are accumulative nothing happens overnight and i had to learn you know i had to go through a lot in this industry to kind of um come out the other side and still actually want to be in it after all i've seen and experienced yeah um there's great beauty in this industry in terms of the the creativity, the pe- the thing I love most about it is working with creative people and you see what the, these people, that just comes out of them, what, what they're capable of. That just astounds me every project. I love it. I love seeing someone's creative process. That's what I love most about it. What I don't like about it is the politics. I don't love it that sociopaths seem to climb the highest. Yeah. <laughs> you know, those qualities. Oh, yeah. Sociopaths seem to succeed the most in this industry. There's so many things I don't, I don't like about it, but as I said, if you choose to focus on the negatives and, and, you know, I've, I've done that, let's do that. You just don't, you, A, you won't enjoy your job. B, B, people won't enjoy working with you. And C, you would just want to leave the industry. You want, you kind of fantasize about studying medicine or something. Yeah. Have you, I think you've got to, you know, make that act choice just to. Um, sure. Sorry. No, that's, 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 uh, you've got so many good points already that it's like, ah, where do I start? But, um, the, I, I guess I'll start at the beginning and that'll sort of give us a good frame of reference. So what you're saying right now is also just, a, I think a healthy dose of, well, a healthy reality check to any creative listening that just having a good attitude, um, and is important. And the means by which you do that is up to the individual, um, okay. So you started out working as, um, crew, um, not crew. So like, sorry, like a, an assistant, I guess on films like Mission Impossible 2 and Bay Pig in the City. Um, did you work or ever in the intervening years, have you worked in any other industry where you wanted to break from entertainment? And was that because you needed a, you needed to try something else out and you become so frustrated by it or... Were there any other reasons behind it? That's actually a really good question. Um, when I I worked in the industry as crew, as you say, in the editing department on really big block, blockbuster films and smaller Australian independents, and I'm so grateful for those, those years. I worked very long hours, worked with extraordinary people. Um, during that time, I also produced, shot, directed and wrote um, the non-fiction feature film, Yes, Madam Sir. And mm-hmm. in between working on these big blocks, 
where I was working for, you know, like a hundred hours a week, I was traveling to India, shooting this film and putting it together. Wow. And then after, after I shot like 500 hours of footage, which is just insane. It was in three languages. I had to kind of put it together into a 95 minute feature film, mm-hmm. which is very tough. That, that whole process took me another two years of just raising finance. And I got Helen Mirren on board to narrate it. And, you know, we put it together into this uh, great film. Um, and then, you know, you do the festival circuit and distribution. And after that point, after that point, I was so burnt out. My father was dying of Parkinson's okay. disease. Um, and I, I hadn't actually really seen my family in well over a decade. Wow. Like I hadn't spent much time with my niece and nephew. Um, yeah, I just, I just been They're, like a major workaholic. Are they all, are they all in <laughs> and Queensland? Yes, I had amazing. Sorry? Are they all in Queensland? Is that the predominant reason why? Because you were so far away? Yeah, I was working all around the world. Yeah, was, which was great. I had, it was a great life, but it was it was work it was work focused, and yeah. it was hard to you know I had personal relationships, but it was it was hard to make plans. It was hard it was hard to tend a wedding or a funeral or whatever wow. you know crops up in life. Um, so when I after yes, madam, so I. I just needed a break and it was it was interesting because at that time in the industry everyone was saying don't have a break capitalize on this heat go to LA mm-hmm. and and I did something that nobody would everyone would tell you not to do which is literally I kind of stepped out of the industry for a couple of years um I cared for my father who was slowly dying of Parkinson's okay and reconnect with my family and I still wouldn't give that I would not change that for anything in the world I don't I don't care what impact it had on my career I really don't when, I, when I'm on my deathbed looking back at my life, I'm not going to think, oh, I wish I spent those two years after you spent so capitalizing on my heat and not looking after my dying father and reconnecting with my wonderful, beautiful family. Exactly. So um, when you were... Um, it's interesting. I just got packaged with... Sorry. No, no, no. We keep cutting each other off, but you're offering such good continuation. So I want you to keep talking. Sorry. You just, you just got offered um, something. I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just add another point. I just got offered... I can't talk about it now because it's confidential, but I'm packaged with this project in LA and it was such an arduous process to be packaged with this project. You know, I felt like I was auditioned for six months and one of the questions of one of the key decision makers of whether I would be attached or not was, you know, why did you take a break from the industry? Like she, they just couldn't believe it. Mm. And no matter, there's no answer that I could have given that satisfied them. And I simply just said at the end of it, which is what I just told you, I would never, I would never change that uh, for anything. And, and I feel like, I feel like I'm a better person for it. Mm-hmm. Like, so I was just so burnt out, and this industry can burn you out. Definitely. So, do, um, you, do any you creative think, that needs to take a break? Do you do think you, that that reason or that answer that you gave sorry. them, that answer that you gave them when you needed a break, was that part of the reason why you've ended up being successful in being packaged for the project? Because they saw your humanity, or do you think you got it in spite of that? No, absolutely not. Hollywood doesn't give a shit about anyone's humanity. No, that's so cynical, but it's true, isn't it? (laughs) Hollywood does not give a damn about people and their humanity. They all they care about is putting a package together that gets over the line that makes someone money. That's all they care about. They don't care about your humanity. They they just thought they could have honestly. They just could have thought I was nuts saying that. I care about my humanity and that's it. That's the point of what I'm trying to say mm. in this industry. Nobody's going to take 
humanity. Nobody's going to take care of your health. You have to do that yourself. And as women, particularly who are people pleasers and can't say no, yeah, that's one thing this industry has taught me. Ironically, because it kind of molds you to be something, it's really taught me I'm just going to be myself. That's all I can be and be yeah. the best version of it. Yeah. I'm not going to, if I, you know, I'll say no to people now. I even I resigned from my first job a few years ago. Oh wow! And I've never resigned before because the the producer was just psychotic. You mean your first um, job as a producer or as a filmmaker? Yeah, I will just, I've got that. No, it's the first job I've ever resigned from in my career. I've oh, put up right. with some stuff in my career. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I just, you know, you've got to have boundaries. You've got to, you know, you've got to be strategic. Um, and you've also got to take care of your craft. You know, you've got to, you've got to work on your craft. You've got to update your skills constantly. You've got to be abreast of the industry and the realities of the industry. Yeah. You know, you can't afford to be delusional or, or have fa- little fantasies in your head that have no correlation with the existing market, all of that. So why do you think then you were able to secure like getting this job, even though they were be- like bewildered by your decision to have a break? <laughs> uh, there's, there's, there's a couple of producers on the project that just saw what I had to offer and looked past that. Thank yeah, God. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and, and it's also chemistry. Honestly, there's been a lot of projects I've tried to get off the ground that haven't got off, off the ground in terms of coupling of people. Okay. And then there's projects that just, there's some projects just slot together like this one, because, you know, ultimately it also comes down to chemistry when you're working with people. It's like entering a very serious relationship. It the is, chemistry yeah. has to be right. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I think people find it refreshing. I think, look, you just got to be yourself. Be, be a professional version of that for sure. Like mm-hmm. don't, you know, obviously you're not going to be doing what you're doing at home on set, but you've got to, you've got to be true to yourself. Otherwise you, in this industry, you very quickly lose who you are. I true. mean, I, and I've been in that place where I just didn't recognize myself at some point. You've got to be true to yourself for sure. Are you allowed to offer any stories for when you, when and why and how you maybe lost sense of yourself for a minute in the industry? And were you able yes. to, and the means by which you were able to sort of extricate yourself from that situation? There's, uh, yeah, there's, there's a, lot, a few times. Um, I'll speak generally about one instance. Just generally speaking, when you're working on long, long projects with big budgets, you know, often there's very, very deep politics. And I don't have a lot of, I can navigate politics. I've learned to navigate it. I'm good at it. I don't have a lot of time for it, though. I don't have a lot of tolerance for it because it's a great time waster. You could be putting that energy into the work. Definitely. So me, I, you know, I have to make sure I don't, you don't get stuck into that negative cycle of just kind of, you know, hating it, hating the politics and and being negative about it. You know, uh, you know, I've, I've gone down that rabbit hole a few times where you just, you just kind of, you, call, you and your colleagues are kind of just bitching about stuff. <laughs> And it's just point. It's as big a waste of time as politics. Definitely. Um, that's a very general example. Another example is, as I said, when I worked on this project a few years ago that I resigned from, it was such a toxic work environment, a very badly behaved person, which I, you know, I won't go into details about. But, um, you know, I almost, I, I was so determined to get the project up and running because I believed so much in the project. It was brilliant um, that I just... I compromised on just basic workplace decorum and I'll never do that again. Um, that was, and that was an extreme situation with an individual, but I will never, that was, that was one instance. I'm glad I went through that because I will never, ever put myself in that situation again. I I won't tolerate that kind of behavior again. 
from somebody okay. in a workplace. Um, that was like that person was like, you know, that movie Horrible Bosses. It was like the Horrible Boss, those three bosses in one person. No way. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how I describe it. Wow. Um, but let's get off that 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 topic. That was yeah. extreme. And yeah. uh, a third a third example I can I can. Um, you know, when I made Yes, Madam Sir, you know, and I've seen it with the big directors that I've worked with, you've got to, you've got to be so, you've got to have that, that kind of tenaciousness to, to see a project through, make sure it's great quality mm-hmm. and see it through to completion. So many challenges and especially when you're making an independent film and raising finance and mm. doing distribution deals, you really are, you know, you're playing against the odds, the odds of that, those things ever being completed or seeing the light of day. You know, if you look at the statistics, are very low. So the kind of tenaciousness, persistence you need is just—it's through the roof. And you know, I—you can kind of become very, what's the word, like blindsided by your by ambition. Just single-minded. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was just so single-minded in my determination that you know, uh, you can put like that film was quite dangerous to shoot. And, mm-hmm. you know, often my single-mindedness to get the shot would come before my safety. And right. when I look back on things like that, that's just dumb. Yeah. And I would never do that again. But you got the film. And when I find myself, I got the film, but when I find my, but you can do it in other ways. And when I find myself ever going, kind of heading down those rabbit holes again, I and that's the beauty of, you know, Learning experience and, and, yes, age. Yeah, you, you I just back because as i said nobody's going to take care of you in this industry but yourself right you do need to watch out for yourself so when you, you what's what's your day-to-day schedule and how do you allow how do you i guess engage in self-care when you're balancing working with companies and or freelancing that's a really good question and like any human being on this planet i go through stages where i'm really good and yep. then i'm really bad yeah um and when I say really bad, you know, you just the the irony is when you're working long hours and your back's against the wall at a, a massive project, that's a time when you need to take care of yourself. But you kind of tell yourself, "Oh my god, I don't have time. I don't have time to exercise. I don't have time to cook a healthy meal. I'll just eat the craft services stuff they <laughs> hand out." Um, you, yeah, again, you have to you have to take care of yourself because I've seen in this industry particularly. Not so much with, with actors because they have um, they oh my god they have so much on their plate but the physical demands of their job I, I believe are a little less than crew unless you're someone who's in every scene you're doing mm. an actress in which case he's in top condition but crew you know crew on films work anywhere from ten to thirteen fourteen hours a day yeah standing up holding Six, stuff seven, seven days a week post yeah and you and I've seen people get really weird stuff at young ages so you've really got to you've got to take care of yourself and and I I, as I said every day I wake up I try and be the best version of myself and that includes absolutely like I I try and meditate every day I um I try a lot of water and eat well and all that stuff I'm not one of those people like LA I find people in LA talk too much much about what they eat and what they don't eat and yeah. how they exercise. That's really boring to me. Yeah. Um, so we'll get off this topic pretty fast. Okay, <laughs> but, good to know. Generally speaking, <laughs> and you got to do the right thing by yourself because no one, no one's going to do the right thing by you. Not, not that they're going to do the wrong thing by you, but no one's going to look after yourself like you can look after yourself. You have to totally look after yourself in every way. You know, you have to have your boundaries. Um, you have to, um, and always keep, always kind of keep that in check because that can very quickly run away from you. As I said, when you 
a creative person. It's a, that passion and single-mindedness that you need to do a project, but that can start overtaking common sense about everything else in your life. Mm. <laughs> and you, you have to keep try and keep that in check. Yeah, otherwise you're not going to be able to have a creative voice to lend it to the project. Um, when you're... When you were working on Yes, Madam Sir, over how many years? Like four or five years? Yeah, I shot it part-time. I was working on these big movies. So I shot it part-time. And I started that when I was really young and and so naive. And it's probably the only reason why I actually plunged into it because I was so young and naive. Um, But I really was kind of jumping into a snake pit doing that movie because it was, you know, it's quite a dangerous situation I was looking into to do it. You know, the movie's about a very controversial figure and it was, um, and she's, you know, she's a marked person. And so me just being around her, I was a marked person. Um, yeah. And I shot it part time. I shot it part time over six years. And that was and over, and that was on your own time. And your it own, didn't kind of, uh, your own time and that money. That was on my own time, my own I own time and money and I, I had no crew. I literally would go to India and sleep on, you know, her floor and I would have the camera in my right on my right shoulder, my the boom mic in my left hand. I'd have equipment strapped to my body like batteries wow. and cables and all that kind of stuff. And then she was on a radio mic, so she had the radio mic uh, transmitter on her belt I had the receiver on my belt and that was that's the one woman one person filmmaking show and <laughs> that's how I shot it yeah like, and over this time yeah. in between going back and forth between India and Australia did you have I mean I'm, I'm assuming that you had moments of doubt with regards to completing the film but also what I guess the question that I have is that I read online that you um discovered her as the topic for the film because you wanted to make your own film um, and you recognized that the documentary was a good medium choice and you saw an interview with her one day. Um, How did you know that that would be a strong enough choice to commit to the next few years, um, I guess, and to be able to go back and forth between Australia and India? And did you ever waver in your your choice or doubt, doubt it? Oh, you doubt yourself all the time, and I'm a I'm a doubter, and that actually makes my, my work better because I'm constantly saying, "Is this as good as it can be?" So that okay. all, that's a great thing in some ways for my work. Um, but to answer the other question, uh, I, I I chose her because because she's this really complex personality. You know, she's quite narcissistic, yet she's you know she has humanitarian elements. Okay, and, and she's operating in a in a really complex world that don't want her. That's so much opposition. And, you know, a hero with that kind of inner and outer conflict, you can't really ask for much more. And But still, it was a niche film. It's, a you know, about a woman police officer in India. I mean, who the hell wants to see that, right? Yeah. It's not, it's not Tom Cruise being blown off the building. Um, but having said that, you know, the response was extraordinary from audiences around the world and the reviewers, I couldn't have written better reviews for the film. So it obviously turned out. Definitely. Yeah, um, very off. well, but I, I doubted myself the whole way through. I doubted myself right up to the point even we got into the Toronto Film Festival and opening weekend right before the movie started. I was still doubting myself. I thought, man, this could just go sideways. Variety are waiting to write or release their review after the film's premiere. I mean, it was just like, you know, you just kind of, well, I was. I was just completely it, scared to death about yeah. how this is going to go down because this is pretty much like the last few years of my life could just completely go down in a 
up in front of, you know, hundreds of people and all my peers were waiting and yeah, yeah. it was just, it was, uh, and then we, at the end of the film, we got this really ending ovation. Um, wow. and then the variety review came out, which was just, I couldn't, couldn't have written a better review myself if I'd sat down and wrote, yeah. wrote my fantasy review. <laughs> Well, I guess I think that you're confirming basically a consistent theme amongst my guests is that in order to have a healthy creative life, unfortunately, it seems that it's necessary to have a strong inner critic. I guess as long as it's constructive and not damaging, then it's for our benefit. Um, random question, but it's just come up um, yeah. in my, as we're talking. Do you? So I'm guessing you have. Do you have an agent as a filmmaker in LA? Is that or but you work? But you also work with Hoodlum. Like, what's what are the logistics or the practical? Um, I have an yes. Logistics are: I have an agent representing me for this project that's hopefully about to be greenlit that I'm packaged with, and okay. I, I'm just about to sign with management representation, which is pretty exciting. Awesome. Because um, I don't. I think the thing about representation is. You know, you kind of, I've always been my own good cop and bad cop and okay. I don't want to be my own bad cop particularly anymore Sure. in terms of, you know, drafting deal. So I, if I need a bad cop, I'd really love them to do it on my behalf. Yeah, <laughs> great. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm tired of doing that. Uh, but um, I did want to, can I just, you, would you mind if I just touched on, there's a theme that's running through your questions as well. You're yeah. saying there's a theme running through my answers, but there's a theme running through your questions. Yeah. I think, yes, take care of yourself yes absolutely have an inner critic and a good one not a not a narky nasty one but a, a good a one that has insight that's really important but I think thirdly is and I see this a lot with colleagues and you know sometimes actors on set or whatever I think the moment you start feeling entitled to anything start experiencing a downfall yeah as an artist okay because when you start you know, when, and I've had, we've all had moments of that, like, man, I worked my ass off. I mm. deserve that. I want that. <laughs> you yeah. know, I, I, I'm entitled to that. No one's entitled to anything in this world and in this industry, particularly more so because there's nothing fair of industry. But I see that it's the greatest source of unhappiness once you start thinking, you know, whether you're thinking, well, I'm entitled to a bigger trailer mm. or I'm entitled to, with respect, or I'm entitled to this accolade or that review or whatever for all the hard work I've done. That that is the greatest downfall of anyone that I've seen. If I could share my any kind of wisdom with anyone listening out there, yeah, do nip that in the mud as soon as you start feeling it, and you will feel it. As I said, I've felt it a million times. I felt it after yesterday, Sarah. Like man, man I just died making this movie. Someone yeah. better like it. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. You just cannot you cannot start thinking. Yeah, and I guess well, yeah, it's a it's a healthy balance. Well, also, I think that sometimes when you even I had a conversation yesterday with a publicist and um, just the outcome of that conversation just just kept me in check, I suppose. So sometimes where like the world or society tells us, you know, you can't, come on, man, like just pull your head in. Don't feel like you're deserving yeah, of that. That's where, that's where, that's where, yeah, that's where bad parenting comes in. My, thank God my mother never told us we were entitled to anything, which I just love her for more and more each day okay. that's that kind of bad i mean helicopter parenting where every, you know everything their child does is special and they yeah. never take any you know bear any consequences for bad behavior that's just that's so dangerous i can't even tell you because um i've just seen it in, in the creative world when you start feeling entitled your work goes downhill 
people don't enjoy working with you as much. You, you're really unhappy because you never actually get what you think you're totally you're entitled to. The bucket, yeah. It's that's and that's that's also like a half glass empty. That's awesome. Oprah talked about that. I just saw a video the other day where she's just saying like lean into life and people would be saying to her, Oprah, that's easy for you because you have everything. And she was like, I have everything because I was grateful for what I had at the time. And then things grew from there. Um, uh, I think I feel I need, I want again. Oh, I want. Am I, are we up to I want? No, no, no. So I think I feel I need, I want. Uh, maybe we didn't even get to I want, but it, I don't. I think you said coffee, so I need or I want coffee. But just to wrap up the interview now, um, now that we're at the end, because our feelings change on a moment-to-moment basis. So I'd be curious to see if anything um, changes. Generally, it does with the guests. Oh, okay. So I think I feel I need, I want. Um, I don't know if anything said. I think what I most want is I've had my coffee. I think Good. what I most want is just to work with really extraordinary. That's what makes working in this industry with all the kind of other stuff you have to kind of navigate. Yeah. That's what makes it worth it. That's all yeah. I want is to work with great people who love what they do and they're good at what they do. And, and I just want my family and friends to be safe and happy and I want the world to be a great place. That's all I want. That's beautiful. Really? Yeah. Really, That's really lovely. Nice. Well, any creatives out there, actors, writers, producers, directors, multi-hyphenates, um, as Megan is, um, which we didn't even get to, but I guess I don't think we need to editorialize on that in much in the same way that you don't need to editorialize what food or exercise you do because that's such an LA thing to do. Um, yeah, no, I find that. I find, you know what? I would pose a question to someone on that to answer your question. Mm. If you looked back over your life and added up all the hours, you talked about what you ate or didn't eat or how guilty you felt or didn't feel guilty or what you exercised or how you pined for some guy or girl, I think you'd be really sad at yourself at those those hours that just were never to be got back again. Definitely. Yeah. Wow. Just just exercise and eat well. Just exercise and eat well and don't fucking talk about it. Yeah. Like <laughs> Keep it simple. Like, God's sake. Yeah. In the same way. And I think, that the sa- I think the same could be said for, I think the same could be said for work in the industry too. Stop complaining and talking about it. Just go do it. Um, which is just per- fucking do it and yeah. be grateful and yeah. stop feeling entitled and you'll be happy. That's the secret to life. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. It's probably a little bit uh, contradictory of me to say that given that I host a podcast in which I'm talking about that, but I'm on my last episode. So it's probably good that I've come to that realization with you now. Um, thank you. Yeah, I think, yeah. I don't think you're podcast indulgent i think your questions have been great thank you for you thank you very much all right thank you so much megan i really appreciate it you've awesome insights guys uh i think you can check out um yes madam sir on netflix is that correct no it's not it's not like netflix it was on itunes but uh i'm just going to change the website by the time this comes out uh go to yes madam sir website okay and you'll find to check it out okay awesome um and then hopefully looking forward to the now confidential project which i'm sure we'll be reading about in variety um in the coming months uh until next time guys thanks megan hey guys uh coming up is part two for my conversation with megan 
We attribute this to some technical issues where parts of her answers before had to actually be deleted. Um, for those who just listened to part one, if you're not in the film industry, this the second part of this conversation might be a little bit specific. If, however, you are screenwriting students or your film students, your actors, your writers, whatever, I highly recommend you continuing listening to this. And if you're just in your car, on your way to work, in traffic, and you haven't um, pressed the next button, you may as well continue listening because in the second part of the conversation, Megan offers some great insights into workplace relations, creativity, and Australian candor, um, which I think are very interesting. Anyway, um, enjoy. Especially as an Australian entertainment professional who's worked in America, um, I've heard stories about Australians experiencing uh, the difference in I suppose, uh, candor and being, as you've said to me, um, having a candor or an honesty that's like healthy and constructive versus perhaps maybe an American style, which is a little bit, um, a little bit, you can just be a little bit rude. Yeah. So what, um, do you have any stories that sort of speak to that difference or your experiences in that area? Yes, look, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. I, there have been moments where I've said stuff that literally quite quietened a room full of people. Like, <laughs> and, you you know, you're just going to have to find out where those boundaries are for yourself. Um, because I think Australians are very candid. It's just part of our culture and who we are and how we communicate. And I think we pride ourselves on that. And I actually feel like I'm, I'm probably more speaking about Los Angeles because I find New York and New Yorkers quite similar to Australians and then they just kind of put it out there and put it on the table. Yeah. But uh, but in Los Angeles, it's a lot more polite and that, that also um, that also connects with the sense of humour. I think Australia's sense of humour is very different to American sense of humour. Definitely. <clears throat> um, so be, be careful about any colourful jokes <laughs> or being very kind of ironic or sarcastic or satirical because it just lands with a sud. For I mean, sure. I literally said something the other day to these people who are asking to manage me and I just said this, you know, they said, we can get you anything. And I said, oh, can you get me hookers and cocaine? <laughs> of course I'm joking. And that just, and that landed with a total thud. I could actually see them doing the math in, you know, we we're on a Skype call. Right. And I could see them like running the scenario through their head. Like, would I get a hookers and cocaine? Could I do that? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was just like, oh my God, I just stayed silent because I kind of enjoyed it for a moment. And then I thought, oh, I've got, really got to tell them I'm joking. Right. You know? <laughs> and did they, did they laugh so, after you said that? Um, no, it's kind of awkward. And I thought, Megan, stop saying those jokes. Well, I think it doesn't work because maybe maybe as Australians, we're not so very used to that in the industry. But I mean, it just reminds me of a story. I was at the offices of a like an Oscar winning production company. And without naming names, I overheard a conversation where they were talking about um, they'd gone to like they just come back from location for a for a shoot with big name actors. And they had organized cocaine and hookers for that actor. So it's yeah i think it's something that happens and they probably maybe they just thought that you were being serious i guess i think they did and they look because I, I probably don't look like someone who wants cocaine and <laughs> so maybe i confused them 
know. I just I thought it was funny. You thought it was funny. You laughed. So I don't know. Anyway, anyway, my point is that the sense of humor is very, very different. So be very, very careful. It's kind of like don't drink at an office Christmas party. Like don't tell colorful jokes yeah. in an American workplace. Sure. That's what I would say. <laughs> and that's and that's but, an anti. Um, yeah, that's like a PC you know, culture to, thing too, I suppose. totally cultural uh so it's not personal but you just you know you've got to remember like we think that you know we grew up with american culture and we think we're kind of the same but we're so different Mm -hmm. and you've really got to look at it like when you're over there and you're working in that context you're working in a foreign environment you're in you're in a foreign country you really are and americans australians are very very different in terms of a sense of humor and also just how they navigate a workplace so before you kind of let your hair down just a little bit just just observe you know, what's the protocol over there? What do people do? And just kind of fit in, I would say, um, if you want to, especially when you're starting off. Um, but another example I'll give about being can, candid, you know, as an artist, mm-hmm. well, from one artist to another yeah, sure. in the industry. And I think that's really, that's really important. Um, so I, I worked with a, um, I had, this is when I, I worked with a director on a second project, a writer-director. And their script was incredible and everyone was giving them those notes that, you know, they really didn't have any kind of criticism. And, you know, because it was, it was such a great script. And we were working together for the second time. And I, um, and so when you, you know, at second time working, you know, we like each other, there's good chemistry, but there's, you know, we don't have that shorthand yet. So you can't just say anything. And I, you know, I really wanted to give a particular note that I thought would make the script better. I thought it was missing. And... I emailed a few times and, you know, you've got to be so careful um, also giving notes to artists because, I mean, I've had directors and artists not talk to me again when I've given notes. Really? And when someone asks me for notes, oh, yeah. And Is when that... someone asks me for notes, I always say, I always say, are you sure? Do you want me to be honest? Is it at a stage where you can actually implement notes or you're kind of close to locking it off because there's no point in me giving notes at that stage? I mean, Good I've question. had people give me notes after I've locked off the project and it's like, dude, I can't do anything with it bloody notes after I've locked up a project that's kind of rude is that so the <laughs> people that the people that haven't spoken to you sorry to interrupt that story but the people that haven't spoken to you after you giving them notes are they Australian or American or both that that person I'm thinking of in my mind right now is Australian okay there's actually two people I can think who just don't they sometimes speak to me but our, our friendship or our relationship isn't the same and it you know dates back to that point where I gave notes and I thought, you know, I always try and be very constructive. I'm never, and, and then as I said, when you're, when you're candid or speaking with candor, you've got to check your intentions. It's not, it's not about getting one up on someone or showing how good you are or, yep. or being nasty. It's actually about really intentionally saying, Helping them. I believe this note could actually, yeah, make something better because you don't want to make it different. You know, I worked when I worked on Lord of the Rings, one of the editors said to me, and he gave me such great, it was such a great thing to say. So there's three kinds of notes. One makes it different, which is pointless. That just makes it yours instead of theirs. Mm-hmm. One makes it worse, which you want to, you want to avoid altogether. And one note makes it better. And that's the one you want to give. And if you're receiving it, you're on the receiving end, that's the one you want to hear and take in. But you've got to know the difference. Everyone's got to know the difference, whether you're giving it or taking it or receiving it. Great. That's um, awesome. But with, on this on this particular instance, I really wanted to give this note. So I, I emailed a few times really gently, you know, can I give you a note? And they never responded. And I thought, well, obviously I can't give a note. We're not at that point before yeah. I can give a note. 
And but I was so I was so this I had like twenty notes, but there was this one note that I was just so sure that they needed in their script. Yeah. So we had it. There was a moment when we were walking from the studio to the office, and I just had a window, and I and I asked really gently. I didn't just give it. I just said, "Would you mind if I gave you a note for the script?" And you know, very generously, they said yes. And then I said, uh, "I gave the note." And I was, I was very diplomatic in the way I said it. I just said, I was just thinking, you know, use all those words. <laughs> you kind of yeah. tiptoe around the notes. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, to their credit, they actually kind of stopped for a moment. There was a moment of silence and I thought, oh, shit, this is not good. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then they said, oh, my God, that's the best note that I've been given. And it was incorporated into the script that day. Wow. Into two scenes. And it just made, there was an emotional beat in the script that it just lifted and made more intense. And I just, I was so, like, but that's a gamble. That is such a gamble. And you've got to always check your intentions, as I said. And you've got to, you know, do it. Always think constructive, constructive, constructive. It's never, as I said, not, you don't do it to show off or get one up on someone or be nasty or put someone in their place. It's always about, is this actually a note that's going to make this work better, not just different or worse? Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Um there's another question that I want to ask you about uh, entitlement, but in the industry. But this might be a bit of an aside. I digress in asking this, but what was what area was that feedback in? So, without being specific about naming names or the, what the project was, this is just like <laughs> this is just your your feedback as like a as a creative in the industry and what makes a good story. Um, I guess can you sort of loosely explain? what the the feedback was or maybe if you can like sort of articulate it as a lesson to screenwriters or to creatives was it some, or was it too specific well, yeah, was it too a, specific you, to that script no no i'll give you a specific i'll give you a, are you talking about giving notes you're talking about just that when i said that you know the worst thing that can happen is for you to feel entitled um I, no no I no, no. Others, so this no this question so this question's more about like just basically how to improve a script or like if you could, you sort of could you sort of is there a lesson to be learnt from the note that you gave to that writer? Could that be um, imparted to to other screenwriters or to to other creatives? Oh well, that was a very specific note for that particular script, and okay. it was just like there was a, it was a situation about a character who was in this you know the best kind of situation. Um, in a script where they're, they're backed against the wall and, you know, kind of like do or die. And I just thought in that moment there was something that that character would be asking for. Like, and I just kind of, I just said that has to be there. And, uh, and uh, they, you know, it's just, it's just about in that moment, you know, if, if it's a note for screenwriters, it's just like when if you push a character's back against the wall, you know, they're really under, you know, kind of, it's in that situation where you just don't know if they're going to make it, which is the best kind of thing in a script. Yeah, high you've got stakes. To, you've got to make sure. High that, stakes possible, yeah. You've got to make sure that it's really real. And because I just, I had a feeling when I read it, I just thought, you know, particularly all the women in this audience are going to just be thinking, ah, oh, I think that person would do this and that would be doing this in that situation. It just wasn't there in the script. That's okay. all. So it was a question um, of realistic. And, and to the right, Sorry? It was like a question Sorry. of like realistic behavior in the situation or in the circumstances almost. It's exactly, exactly. So while you're pushing a character, you know, kind of under the thumb, you've got to always keep it real and also specific to that character. Yeah. You, you can't, it, otherwise it feels 
it feels it's really exciting, but it just feels written. Mm-hmm. You never want a scene to feel written. You want it. You want it to have authenticity. And I, I thought that that note that I gave just added. It was already brilliant scene. Like, don't get me wrong. Without the note, it still would have played. But I think it just added a touch more authenticity and also a touch more like heart wrenching emotion. Okay. So yeah, I would, yeah, that's all. Yeah, no, that's 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 amazing. I'm sure that any um any screenwriter or any film student out there will be thinking about that feedback. And again, this is making me ask another question that is probably a little bit off topic. But where did you where do you think that you got these insights from? Did you study arts? Did you study writing? Like, how have you developed this ability to know what makes for a good story? Or is it just like really just a culmination of years in the industry? It's actually it's actually a combination of um, you know actually like working in the editing room for ten years that is storytelling yeah. it's not sitting down and writing something but it's a it's a kind of storytelling where you, you're inheriting someone's work okay so you're inheriting someone basically their photograph script so you're inheriting these ingredients yeah. the footage yeah and you and you hope to oh, hope to God they're great ingredients as in that. You know, a great script being written, and I'm talking shooting script, not just a great story, but a shooting script that hits all the beats, right? Yeah. You can read it. This is the thing about reading great scripts. You can read something that's a beautiful story and beautifully written, but it's got to hit those beats that's actually like, a, for example, a feature film, a screen story. You know, all those, it's got to be written in a three-act structure and hit those beats that the audience subconsciously expects when they're sitting down and watching something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then you hope to, hope to God the director and the actors have done their job in, in terms of executing the script and bringing it to life. And then, as an editor, when you sit down, you know it's all about structure and pacing. And you know, <clears throat> for example, that film that I made, Yes, Madam Sir, in the last few weeks of editing, I completely restructured that, that the um, narrative of that film. Like I, I wow. literally moved the middle to the end. Okay. <laughs> wow. And <clears throat> yeah, it, which was a big gamble. But um, there was a lag in the middle of the film, and it was the best thing I did for the film. It really elevated the, na- the narrative. But in terms of where you learn to do that, it's, 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 it is a combination of, yeah, years in the industry, working on lots of different stories with lots of different storytellers. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, editors are storytellers, directors are storytellers, writers are storytellers. Um, and it's, you know, it's reading a lot of scripts. Like, I, I think that, you know, writing a script takes a huge amount of skill, but reading a script yep. takes an enormous amount of skill. And there's so very few people I've actually met who actually, like non-writers, who actually, like, know how to sit down and read a script and go, yep, that's a shooting script. Yeah. Or how, or, or that's not a shooting script, but it's a few, it's a few drafts away from a shooting script. Yes. Or it's just a great Vanity Fair article. I mean, <sighs> who knows? But... I know some you know, producers in LA. A yeah, a producer oh, in L- a producer in LA has told me that if you want to be serious, or especially as a as a producer or, or whatever, that you need to be reading on the even on the weekend, like you know, three to seven, three to ten scripts, I guess, over the weekend, um, or at least a week, just to sort of be aware of what's out there and refine your understanding of it. Um, would you have you ever done that yourself, I or is it because it's part of your good. job anyway? Yeah, no, I think I think that's really good advice and I read so many of my friends scripts and I also make sure I 
watch or read something a day. I think reading three to ten scripts in a weekend, you would have no life. And I, yeah. I, I'm all about balance, as I said. Sure. Because um, it does take me, like, for example, reading a feature fil- film script, it takes me a good couple of hours. And okay. if I'm giving notes on it, it can take the whole day. Sure, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I kind of read it, and I try and read it in real time as an audience would experience it, and I kind of visualize it as I read it. But I think, you know, yeah, yes, I think that's really good advice. Read and read good scripts and bad scripts. And there's, you know, more bad scripts out there than good scripts. Yeah. Like, obviously, good scripts are films, films or te- television shows that have already been made. Yeah. Um, you know, and obviously, obviously, you know, spec scripts are great. But it's good to read both good and bad and kind of ask yourself why are they good and bad. And also reading script, script writing books. Like I read, you know, Save the Cat's Fantastic and Robert McKee's story. And I think my favorite of all time is Aristotle's screenwriting for Poetics. Okay. What's it called? No. Yeah, three, screenwriting version of Poetics. Don't get the original Poetics version. You can't understand it. But, <laughs> but the um, screenwriting version is just that for me. That's what I used to make Yes, Madam Sir. Okay. I, I took 500 hours of footage and put it into a 95-minute three-act structure. And that was my Bible, Aristotle screenwriting for poetics. Everyone has their Bible, like directors, you know, some directors are in, it's like Robert McKee is the best, or some people are, no, it's Joseph Campbell, Hero Story, or some mm-hmm. people, it's Save the Cat. For me, it was that, and I, and I literally used that book to get it to, I had it, it was like in tatters <laughs> next to my avid, you know, um, and I used that book to create what I thought was a working direct structure, which apparently worked because it got great views, but um <laughs> You know, you got to, you got to kind of, you've got to just, yeah, be reading scripts, be writing, be um, reading uh, script writing textbooks, or yeah, and looking at different ways writers approach story. Like if you see a movie where the narrative is different, or that it's non-linear, or something, they've done something a little bit different. Then you know, go re- go get go pull up the script online and look at it and mm-hmm. look how they wrote it. And also, it, a really good thing to do is have a script in front of you and have the, 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 the released work playing and to compare it, compare the shooting script of what they did in the edit That's and a good think, tip. well, why did they lose the beginning down the end? Or yeah. why did they lock that thought? Why did they lose 10 scenes? Like, you know, that's, sto- that's storytelling. That's yeah. problem solving in the storytelling process. So that's all, all of that's a really good thing to do. Definitely. Okay. That's amazing advice. Thank you so much. Um, I'll turn now, I guess, to the question of, You've mentioned um, to me before the issue of entitlement in the industry um, and how I suppose that to you is sort of can represent the death of an artist or can be the trigger for when your artistry goes downhill. Do you have any examples of when you've experienced that and how you've been able to turn it around? Uh, Yes, (laughs) I've seen, I won't speak for others, although I have seen it in others and that's really helps you learn sure um to to you know basically not not avoid avoid other people's Um, mistakes yeah avoid it well i think in 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 your life at all when you when i start to see in in myself or others that kind of feeling of entitlement you can see it in two-year-olds it's not a it's not attractive b it doesn't lead to happiness clearly (laughs) because someone's usually throwing a tantrum yeah. Throwing some kind of tantrum or whinging about something. And see, it's just completely counterproductive to actually getting, you know, actually what you want anyway, which is the irony of entitlement. Because mm. entitlement is something about, I-, I want this and I don't have it. Well, mm. just sitting there feeling entitled and whinging about it's never going to get you there. <laughs> um, 
that um, in my experience, I'll just speak for myself, is that, you know, when I when I got on to, when I, you know, got this, uh, was awarded this Great Coot Fellowship, I was so excited and, you know, the showrunner invited me onto the show. Um, but when I, you know, the, the few days before I started, I found out the showrunner who invited me onto the show so generously had gotten off the show. And there was a new showrunner that I didn't know about at all and didn't, they, they didn't know about me. And, you know, that was a moment, you know, that I, that kind of really threw me initially, I have to admit. And it was because if, when I really searched myself, I felt entitled to the mentorship of that original showrunner. Okay. And, you know, and he's such a, you know, he is so brilliant in the industry and I kind of turned down all these jobs to do this um, fellowship and um, I was so excited about it. And it's kind of like this whole dream that I had of kind of being mentored by this person just yeah. came shattering, crashing down. And, you know, I did go through a period you, where I was, yeah. I, I was, you know, a little pissed off and, and and feeling like entitled to his mentorship and which was completely completely I think inappropriate because first of all this person's just given me this invitation and a gift into a world I would never have had access to. And once I kind of checked myself after my initial reaction, I just thought, Oh my god, Megan, this is this just this is like such a an enormous privilege you've been handed. Just take it however it comes, that's how it's meant to be just take it and run with it. And I'm so glad I changed my attitude and checked it at the door because otherwise I wouldn't have had, I mean, I spent a season on the show and it honestly was one of the best years of my career. Right. And I never would have had that experience had I kept that initial reaction going. And, you yeah. know, I'm just human and everyone probably had the same initial reaction. But really, I, you know, you had, I had to check it, the check ability, it at the door. The ability to um, check it, though, is what, is is something that it's how you respond to any situation i think it's not it's not what happens to you it's how you respond to it that i think is could be applied to any industry or any profession or any any life lesson because we're all dealt various hands but the ability to respond to it and be aware of how to respond to it i guess is an important skill set in and of itself it is and it, i think particularly for this industry because there's a lot of you know, you can if you look around. There's, there's a lot of people kind of jumping up and down. Whether they they hide it, probably. But yeah. I, I know just even talking to my colleagues and friends, we all kind of jump up and down every now and then and go. You know, for example, I, I know someone, and I won't mention their name, but I know someone who made a film recently, and honestly, it was so beautifully crafted and directed and written. And I thought this is going to launch their career, and mm. it didn't. And there's no, there's no, that's the thing about this industry, there's not, it's not fair, there's not really any rhyme or reason about it. Mm. I mean, just because you make a great work doesn't mean anything. It yeah. really doesn't. It's not necessarily going to mean that anyone even notices you. And that, that, you know, on face value, that sounds really unfair and hard to digest, but that's the reality. Yeah. And, you know, this project didn't launch them. And I know that they went through a little stage where they, you know, they kind of, they knew they'd done something great. And for whatever reason, it didn't happen. And, you know, they did feel a bit entitled to some kind of reward. And that does, you know, it does kind of make sense. You can see how they would think that, but it doesn't, doesn't get them anywhere, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think, I think that they ended up, you know, dropping that and just, they just kept working at it. And finally, it's starting to gain some traction. Great. But as I said, it's like, it's so, it's, it's so freaking pointless. 
sitting there feeling entitled. And and um, and this is also an industry which definitely lends itself to that behaviour, but it's just it's beyond pointless. And as I said, I, I think it leads to enormous inner unhappiness and it also leads to artistic death because how can you be your your focus is somewhere else. It's on it's on you feeling like half glass empty rather than just I always think whenever I'm whenever I shift my focus onto negative stuff or anything, I just think this focus needs to be on the work and making the best work possible. Definitely. And that's what I, I always just go shift your focus because you're you're sitting here or you've been hired or you've started this because you want to tell the story. That's the focus. Everything else is secondary, including politics, including mm-hmm. everything. Mm. It's just you know, telling the story the best way possible for whatever whatever suits the market at that that time as well. Yeah. Not just telling the story you want to tell it about being realistic as well. Yeah, yeah, true. And do you think that in your friends in your friend's case, was it even though the film itself was amazing as you said, do you think it just wasn't the right time market wise? And that's why maybe it didn't initially catch on? I don't know what I don't know what it is and that's the thing. No who who the hell knows? Like who the hell knows what hits and what doesn't? I, I remember when, I remember when Yes, Madam Sir, it was really interesting. It screened at in New York MoMA to like the kind of glitterati of the New York set, and that was an extremely um, that's an extremely huge privilege for your film to be screened at the New York um, Museum, uh, sorry, Museum of Modern Art, MoMA, yeah. and and. They so they screened it and it actually got a standing ovation. And I remember the curator whispered into my ear. This is when I was doing the festival circuit, right? Yeah. And I had these enormously variety in the Hollywood Reporter just gave glowing reviews and everyone was saying what how beautiful and fantastic the film was. And the curator of the of Momo whispered into my ear and said the last time people got on their feet for a film was in the sixties when we showed a Truffo film. Wow. And I was just thinking, Oh my god, I superstar you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and um you know of course you do and then and then at the end of the screening um this this really famous writer came up to me and said uh you know that is brilliant storytelling and I said thank you I work you know worked so hard to make it what it was and then she, and then she said to me you really should be getting an Oscar nomination for this film and I was like oh my god <gasps> an Oscar nomination and then and then the next thing she said to me but you won't <laughs> and I was like oh. what? <laughs> And she said, you won't get it. And I said, oh, my God, what, how could you say that? I don't know. Are you on the, you know, you're a voter. And she said, she goes, look, no one's heard of you. No one's heard of the film. <laughs> the voting's coming up very soon. You know, Harvey Weinstein's already on his 50th screening, publicity screening of his of his film. Right. You know, you'll never, you'll never get it. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't matter that you created a great work that deserves an Oscar nomination. She said, you know, you won't get it. And I did it. Right. <laughs> I, got, I, I was selected to qualify for the Academy Awards, which oh. is that one step close to close yeah, to that. That's amazing which is very still. exciting. But you're right, we didn't, we didn't get it. But it's just that thing of, I guess the point is, and I'm so glad I went through that experience. It doesn't, because I was thinking, oh my God, these reviews are insane and I won all these awards and, you know, Toronto, I remember Toronto rang me up and said, you're in the top six films of the festival and wow. I didn't even have any celebrities in my film. You know what I mean? It was like, mm. but it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's going to give you something or you're going to be launched. It, you've just got to, you've just got to do it. That's another thing. Just do, do this job because you love it. You love storytelling. You love working with gifted artists who are also storytellers. If you do it for anything other than that, 
you're never going to find any satisfaction. You're never going to be fulfilled. Definitely. You don't ever do anything for, you know, rewards or, or awards or people, you know, because you want people to say how talented you are. You've just got to do it for the work. And if you don't want to do it for that, you just, you're not going to find happiness. Uh, and I've, again, I've seen that with colleagues. Um, you, you see it, you see it over the years. And yeah, I just think you just, you just have to simply do it because you like whatever you've chosen, whatever field you've chosen to be the storyteller in, whether it's an actor, a writer, director, producer, or all, all four of them. I don't know. That's a great, yeah. that's a fantastic piece of advice. And I, I love that, that interaction at, at MoMA. That's a great way to end the conversation. Um, these insights are awesome. Seriously, very, very grateful. I think you just taught something of a masterclass. Um, so uh, I wouldn't be discouraged if I were you if you end up finding your quotes somewhere in some film school on the other side of the world. I'm sure someone will pick it up or find you very educational and really informative and helpful. Um, yeah, thank you. Wow, thank you so much. I feel really, really grateful just even for this conversation. Um, guys, for, to you listening, I hope you learned something. And thank you to Megan. Megan, are you on social media, like anything public, or are you sort of off that? I'm not very, I'm not really into being public. That's all right. I'm not an actor, so I feel like I'm behind the scenes. I am on Facebook, so if someone, look, anyone wants to reach out, one thing I say is share your information because some people in the industry don't, and I'm a yeah. great I think always pay it forward, share information. So if anyone wants to reach out to me, they're very welcome to Okay. Um, on Facebook. I've got a website called sojournfilms.com. I'll, I'll, I'll send you the details. Okay. Um, they're very welcome to reach out to me. Okay, awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Megan. And thanks, guys, to the listeners. All right, until next time.